Hello, welcome to another episode of the Spirit of 2016 podcast after a, a long layoff for us and at a time where we're all hoping, praying that football isn't coming home, but we now have the news that Michael O'Neill is. He has been appointed Northern Ireland manager on a four and a half year deal. And uh, to discuss this with me, Andy Bell, I've got Stuart Cherry in the Maldives and I've got Dave Dunning back in Belfast. And Dave, we'll start with you. Um, it, it's... In terms of appointments, when when Barraclough was sacked, I was I, w- I was happy that it was over. I, I didn't see it going anywhere. I thought that his his work that he was brought in to do was was done to an extent, and that he wasn't the right man to take us forward and uh, to bring us into the next phase of this Northern Ireland team. And when I looked at the candidates, there were some some uh, managers I wanted, some I was less keen on, but ultimately I just felt a change was needed. I never actually thought Michael O'Neill coming back was realistically in the equation. Um. And I'm just absolutely buzzing that he is. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it feels nice, doesn't it? Um, it's not often that we get a moment like this where we talked about this just a minute ago before we started recording, but um, we always look at who are the candidates and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh God. Remember the Avram Grant shouts in oh, 2012, was it? <laughs> honestly, yeah, honestly, like you're looking at the candidates and it's all the way down to Tommy Wright and you're like, Christ the night, where are we going to end up? And it's not often we even have a candidate like Michael O'Neill there. And this is obviously a very different Michael O'Neill than than we that we got reputationally. But even then, you know, his reputation was strong with the work that he did at Shamrock Rovers, like really, really strong. Um, but this just feels, dare I say it, a little bit box office for the likes of us, you know. So yeah, it's it's best case scenario. It's it's the man that everybody wanted. It's the man who has a track record. It's the man who will be able to come in and make an immediate connection with players that he's already worked with and um, understand the setup behind the scenes, understand the structure, understand what he wants to do, know exactly what works before, know that the conditions aren't that different. Um, and with possibly an even deeper squad than he had the first time. And I don't think loads has changed um, other than players have got a little bit older. So, um, yeah, it's 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 best case scenario. And I really couldn't be happier. It's best case scenario in every sense, Stuart. And, uh, you know, in, in a sense, in terms of a, a broader footballing way of looking at things, there's managers out there, as we were discussing before, and the, the, the example I used is somebody like a Ralph Hasenhutl, who's just been sacked by Southampton. He's going to walk into a job that is that is more high caliber, that's paying a lot more, and his, his stock on a, from a global perspective is much higher than, than what Michael O'Neill's is. But we were talking before, if, if you even look at the, the top managers in world football, you could go higher than Hasenhutl for, for, in terms of managers I would turn down in favor of having Michael O'Neill back at, at Northern Ireland. Part of that is the fact that for international football, you do need to cultivate that culture and uh, of of your own country. You don't want it to become a sort of England B type thing, the way the Republic of Ireland were accused of all those years ago. But also just because of his record with us, and and probably how suited he is to international management. And we'll come on to the job he did at Stoke, and we'll analyse that in a little bit more detail in terms of the financial situation when he came in and and how exactly he did and fans' perspective uh, perception of it. But the way you always heard about Michael O'Neill being talked about was he's meticulous in his preparation, his analysis is 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 top drawer. He watches these teams over and over and over again, and that's borne out in the performances where 
every player knows the role, every player knows the setup, every player buys into it, which is definitely something we didn't have with the previous manager. And you listen to the club managers talk, and even Premier League managers who play what six games less a year than the championship or eight games less a year than championship managers, you'd hear them talking about how we've only had one day to prepare for a game, we've only had one training session to get them prepared for a game, sometimes even none. In the championship, you're pretty much playing midweek games every week. So Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Exactly. It? You look at any Tuesday, Wednesday night during the football season, during the year, you're, you're, you'll see championship games on your live score app or your flash score app. You're going to see it. So this preparation and these sort of marginal gains that Michael O'Neill helped us, helped make us so good and, and helped give us the, the, the best years of our lives as Northern Ireland supporters, he wasn't getting at Stoke. That said, I'm still so shocked. You know, we talked about the financials of it. He was on double the money. He could have got another job in the championship for at least another while. Um, but it, but he's just fancy coming back, and for whatever reason it is, I'm so thankful for it. I think it is. It's just it is just really really pleasing news. I think having to go through everything that we've gone through over the past sort of two and a half years when he left, and there was a degree of lamenting when when he when he left, like. 140 years of Irish football. He's the second best manager we've ever had. You know, that's, you know, there's 11 managers came before him and, and he's Arguably number two. the best. We, we certainly can come on to that. I think if we'd Maybe qualified... another podcast. Then, if we, yeah, if another podcast. I think if Johnny Evans header had snuck in and burn, I think you probably would be talking about the best ever, in my opinion. But to your point, I think there's there was just such faith and confidence in him. And I think in the last two and a half years since he left, we got a manager that no one was particularly inspired by. We lost a playoff final at home that we shouldn't have lost. And then we go on this horrendous run of, what, six wins in 28 matches. And I think the time when we did the last pods and, you know, defeats the Kosovo and Greece and looked completely impotent any time we took to the field, to now and seeing the fanfare that Dave alluded to, to see the... I don't know, just the, the general levels of excitement. I've ever, one of my brothers lives in Dubai, friends live in, in England and Scotland, Australia, and we're all talking about it. We're all actually getting excited about it. We're all actually saying, when are you go, what games are you going home for? And that to me is something that I honestly do not believe any single manager almost in the world could have done other than Michael. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It could have been Klopp, it could have been Guardiola. I honestly, genuinely, and it sounds ridiculous to say this, I don't think we've been as excited as we are about Michael coming back because, you know, seeing is believing and he has delivered. Um, and I, I feel like it's just a five and a half year deal to, I think I'm sure the financials work well for him, but even at that, knowing that, you know, working with Aaron Hughes, new director of, of elite football for the Irish FA, you know, that close relationship he has, you know, um, that's really exciting. But it's funny, my brother and I were talking about this and as excited we are about Michael. I think the biggest difference, I think, in Michael's reign to Barraclough's reign, and see, even you take the first 20 matches for each of them where they're, they're winning a similar amount of games, probably, you know, Barraclough won more probably in his first 20. But there didn't seem to be any process. There didn't seem to be structures. You know, as you said before, the backroom staff was changing frequently two or three goalkeeping coaches. We had English coaches come in left, right and centre. I couldn't even tell you at the minute. Is it John Schofield? Who's Schofield? Who's the, who's the under-21 manager? Did we, he get we, sacked? We didn't, I thought he got sacked. I, I, I have no idea. But this is what I'm saying. We didn't, there was no, 
we didn't identify with any of those people. Yeah. But if it was Stephen Robinson, if it was Austin McPhee, if it was Jimmy Nichol, if it was, you know, Mike Taylor and the goalkeeping coach, we, we knew those people, we trusted those people. And I feel that that's the, the hallmark of Michael. He, his attention to detail. When you think we brought an Austin McPhee to help us work on set pieces, and then Ian Barraclough says, we don't even practice corners. Yeah. And the night and day aspect of that, I think, has just given us this reassurance. I think Dave said it's a bit like getting a, getting, getting, getting that, like a warm, fuzzy hug. And it is that. I think there's just a, there's a security and there's an excitement that comes with that. Michael O'Neill, as a manager in our lifetimes, supporting Northern Ireland, Dave, is unique for an obvious reason because he, he led out the first Northern Ireland team I ever saw or you ever saw or Stuart ever saw or anyone under the age of, what, 45, 50 ever saw. At a at a major championships, I think this is going to sound. I think I was definitely alive. You were alive, but you don't you don't remember it. No, I don't remember. No, 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 no. So he's unique in that sense, but he's unique in a in a way in which I think is certainly linked to that. I mean, intrinsically linked to this. But even great results or great times that we've had in our lifetimes, as short lived as they've been as Northern Ireland fans, the Laurie Sanchez era a couple of decent results, you know, under Nigel Worthington, very short-lived, even, you know, occasionally under Barraclough with the, the draws against Italy and Switzerland. What Michael did that nobody other Northern Ireland coaches ever done is beat the teams regular that you, we should be beating, the Belarusers, the Estonias, getting the 12 points in those qualifying groups, beating the Czechs, even those nations, before you talk about those nations, are rung up like the Czechs, Norway, etc., who, you know, were regularly taking points off and, and getting points away from home against. He beat those teams, you're you know, the rung just above the Gibraltars and the Andorras and the San Marinos, they beat them consistently. And I'm looking at our, our group and listen, I think from what you read in the media, Michael was looking at another club job. And then when the Northern Ireland job came up, he was lured by the idea that there's a big chance to qualify for another major tournament here. And I think we're kidding ourselves in a way if we think that that's Michael home for good now. He's going to retire as Northern Ireland manager. He's going to do 20 years and we're going to have it. At some point, you know, he's going to probably have another crack at club management and that's absolutely fine. And if that's past 2028, that's absolutely fine as well. But you look at that group and it's such a big chance for us. And I suppose the question is, and it's a bit of a disrespectful one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And it's certainly disrespectful in the way I'm going to frame it. How bad is the damage from Barclough? Is it so bad that he's going? There's going to have to be a period of transition into Michael, which is going to mean we're not going to be able to pick up from where we left off. How bad is it? And I suppose the other thing is, a lot of people talking about how 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 much weaker the squad is now and how much older it is now. Well, people weren't talking like that when Michael O'Neill took over. You know, Michael O'Neill made a lot of these players into the international players and the quality players that they were. Like nobody was talking about Kyle Lafferty when Michael O'Neill came in as somebody who'd fire us to a major European championships. So how bad is the damage? And are we, are we in with a realistic chance of, of qualifying for this, this competition in the same way we were, I guess, in 2016, or is it worse than that? Well, I think first of all, I think the group was certainly a big lure. Maybe, maybe the, maybe the deciding factor on what he did next. Um, I think he sees this as an opportunity to not just repair his reputation, but the enhance his reputation. Because say what you want about his, rip, his, his record at Stoke. Stoke seems to be one of those clubs that just nobody can get it right for whatever reason. And there's got to be something deeper rooted at what's going on there that 
that is the problem. So, you know, I think he was on a hiding to nothing by the looks of things at that club. Um, looked like a great opportunity <clears throat> from the outside looking in, but potentially when he goes in there, it's it's not the structure that that he wants, and um, he doesn't have the influence and power, if you like, that he certainly had to have things exactly the way he want them, wants wants them when he was working for the IFA. And I think that is him as a manager. He needs to have everything exactly the way he wants it. You use the word meticulous, but I don't think that's just with regards to the first team. I think that is right across the board, you know, under 19s, under 21s, what's going on with um, selection, who's being looked at to potentially come across and play for us if you want. He did speak in his interview about finding players, you know, that was something that he mentioned. So I think that, yeah, it's an opportunity for him. The damage, um, he came in 2011, isn't that right? 2011, yeah. um, a 13-game winless streak uh, we were on, and I think he takes something like, is it like two wins and a draw from his first 10 or something like that, or two a win and two draws? But I suppose the point is, Dave, we can't afford that if we want to qualify for this <sighs> tournament. No, we can't. We can't. And the difference is here, Barraclough came in not on that run. He came in with a, a team that was in a, a playoff for a major championship. You know, that's the team that he inherited, the squad, the setup he inherited. I don't think he's done damage. I think he has unpicked some things that were working really well, neglected a lot of facets of what made us really good. In the top 20s, 27th or something, you sure you should surely know this. 27th rankings. Yeah, rankings. What was, what was we, we got the 22, rankings? I think. We got the 22. Yeah. Do you know 22nd in the world? That's they're talking about what 40, 40, what 40 something teams being in the Tw- 20th. Their highest 20th. was 20th. Did you get to 20th. 20th? Yeah. Do you know 20, September 17th. Absurd. So he, know, he knows what works. And I think the important thing is here there's still a lot of senior players there that have a lot of respect that will be able to adapt much quicker than when he was in the first time. It'll be like, it'll be like as, the, as the saying goes, slipping on an old shoe, a comfortable old shoe. Um, and those things, like particularly Stuart mentioned the set pieces, um, what is, it's an, a mental stat that the percentage of our goals that were set pieces in the- 2016, it was 80%, 80%. yeah. 80% or something, yeah. something like 11 from 11 of the 13 goals was from yeah. set pieces. Yes, that's right. Is, yeah. That is wild, you know? So but you, I don't, but the brilliant thing about that, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I just, I don't think it will take him anywhere near the length of time to reinstill all of those structures and behaviours because there is a core group that will just be like, I know this works. We know this works. They'll be able to bring the younger group along with them. It'll not be another false dawn. And... Hopefully that should breed far quicker success than it did the first time. Go on, Stuart. What were you going to say? No, it's just a, such a such an interesting thing when you look at the parallels from when he took over in whatever it was December eleven twenty eleven to December you know twenty twenty two. As Dave pointed out, we had two wins out of twenty four matches before Michael came in, and now we've had six wins out of twenty eight matches. 
you know, you're talking, let's be pretty up, horrendous records there. <laughs> Those are not good records. So are all. we as bad as we were before Michael came in? I don't think we are, but the, no, the records so are similar. But if we are, no, then the, 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 the first sort of 10, 12 games that Dave mentions of Michael O'Neill are ultimately gonna uh, if they're repeated, it's gonna it's gonna screw up a, ch- a chance of qualification for this next tournament, which there's nothing we can do about. It. We can't get any better a manager in. But I'm just trying to work out: is this gonna take a bit of time? The problem we have, right, in my opinion, the problem you had eleven sorry, the problem you had eleven years ago is you were coming off the back of a manager who had lost the team probably 12, 18 months before he lost his job, but. There was so much potential. You have a, you know, if you were to pick an Irish 11, you know, I've 140 years, would Johnny Evans and Steve Davis be in it? They probably would. Would, would, you know, David Healy be in it? He absolutely would. You know, there's a whole bunch of other players there that would be knocking on the door there, thereabouts. And that's the, the players that Michael inherited. And he did that 11 years ago. The same caliber of players that are coming through now. Now, Connor Bradley's class, is he going to be John, Johnny Evans' class? We don't know. Daniel Ballard's class is Johnny Evans' class. We don't know. Ali McCann isn't Steve Davis' class. Shane Lavery isn't David Healy's class. But the point is, I think the team is better than it was when he took over the job the first time. But we still don't have that caliber of players that he had when he took over the first time. And that would be my only concern. Um, I think the other thing about it is... Sorry, sorry sure. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, sorry, and the only point I was going to say was international football has also moved on in that period of time. And I, I know it's a real cliche, so there's no easy game in international football. So many of the international sides now are far better than they were a decade ago when Michael took over the job. Luxembourg, we should have, we thought we were going to dance past Luxembourg and, and, and drew and lost to them. Now, I'll be honest with you, Luxembourg are a genuinely tricky team decent outfit and, and and it's just as an example and i think that's Pharaohs as well by the way for a while were Pharaohs like a, as well oh horrendous thing they're Real not a stock anymore they're not not at all and no one is why because they're organized and the funny thing about under barraclough we weren't organized we were the absolute antithesis of what international football is taking advantage of set pieces playing to your strengths having a system and structure that works and we were none of those things under ian and that was a disappointing yeah. thing yeah, I think um, you say we might not have as strong a squad. Well, maybe a stronger squad, but maybe not the calibre of players. O'Neill, like you mentioned, Andy Lafferty, was able to elevate those players to a level that they they weren't able to get to or have never been able to get to, even in their club careers. Um, and you might have like a, a Gavin White or a Shane Lavery there or an Ali McCann there that can do that. Um, the other thing, Andy, you, you know, will it take that long? I think... Managers have to earn the trust and confidence of their squad and their players. I think that takes time. And I think it takes even longer when you're in an international setup. You don't have them four or five days a week to be able to build those relationships and build that trust in what the process is and, and, and for the players to believe that the process is going to work. He already has that. You know, that is a massive advantage. And the other thing that I think relevant here is I know we were like brutal under Barraclough for a, the majority of the time. But how many times did partic- particularly Ben say, oh, we've kept him at a job again tonight? <laughs> last minute equalizers, last minute winners. You know, we've kept him in a job again. But what that tells me is there's still fight in that squad. It's not a squad of 
you know, absolute no hopers that just have no idea what which we've seen, there, which we've seen, it, it, and which Michael O'Neill mm. inherited. Yeah, fair point. Go on, sure. So, yeah. Dave, Dave's point, and as I say, I would agree with you. If you look at, say, the defeats, the results we had in 2022, okay, beat Luxembourg and a 1 0 defeat to, to Hungary in a friendly, a 1 0 defeat at home to Greece, that's only one goal, 0 0 draw in Cyprus, no goals, 3 2 defeat away to Kosovo, 2 2 draw at home to Cyprus, 2 1 1 against Kosovo, and a 3 1 1 defeat away to Greece. The point being, there's fine margins there. There are fine, fine, fine margins. If you have three better set pieces a game that might result in one goal. You have a slightly better structure and setup that might result in preventing, you know, the, the goals that we conceded to, to Kosovo and the goals we conceded to Greece. You have, um, you, you, you use your subs better. I think one thing for me, I don't think Barakov ever used his bench well enough. And actually, if you look at Michael, I think one of the, th- the hallmarks of him, he does use his, bar- his bench well. Now I'm again coming off the bench against Hungary away. Prime example, uh, an assist and a, and a goal. And I feel that he can do this very well. Um, but I, to me, it, it just got shit under Ian towards the end. It just, it really did. And he's a genuinely nice fella. And I'll tell you one thing, if he was to come back in to take on the under 21 job, I genuinely, I, no qualms, I wouldn't yeah. actually be disappointed. I wouldn't be disappointed. I don't think he will, but I wouldn't be disappointed. But I think it's those fine margins that Dave mentioned that Michael can get something out of the players that I don't think Barakov can, be that motivation, be that uh, belief, be that structure, be that planning. I think he will have that. that he's just a superior manager to Barakov. And Barakov, if he nearly got those results, Michael might actually get those results. Yeah, and, and there's there's lots of other facets to it as well, which we can't really speculate over. And there's no real point to speculating over either. And, you know, Dave mentions players coming over and Michael was always big on sort of recruitment of players from... Uh, you know, he had family links to Northern Ireland. Also, the likes of, you know, Liam Boyce and Michael Smith. We've no idea what really the circumstances were. It could have been nothing to do with the manager. We know that, you know, I know that Liam Boyce is a young kid, but, you know, if, if you're 50 50 in these decisions, you're having to prioritize, you know, the, the change in manager, the guy who trusted you, the guy that made you feel brilliant on the international stage for 10 years. You know, those are the types of things that can sway you one way or another if you are 50 50 on a decision. And it will be interesting to see if those players right. come back. You know, Andy, we, it's like if you're going to go out on a night out and you're like, oh, I don't really know if I'm going to go. And then you hear, oh, here your man's going. Aye, okay, I'll go. Yeah, Happy yeah, days. Yeah. It's like that. She, exactly. She's going, get me the beers. Andy's going, I'm staying at home. I completely <laughs> agree with you. <laughs> it didn't take long for that one to come around. Um, but, but, but yeah, and, and the other, the, I suppose the other thing, and again, something you can never prove, and you can certainly never level it at individual players because you, you really never know. But the pullouts in the squad, um, which we, which was sort of a a cliche pre Michael O'Neill, pre Michael O'Neill the first time, the players pulling out, the players who you know picked up these injuries always around international breaks and were back two weeks later for their clubs and players didn't want to play for Northern Ireland and Michael O'Neill completely turned that around and then. And, you know, some of it could have been coincidence, but we had a hell of a lot of pullouts. I mean, Dave, remember that podcast we did at your house um, that we recorded? And then we had to re-record another one three days after because basically the teams that we'd named for in our starting lineup, about six or seven of them had pulled out. And, you know, I'm sure some of those were, uh, I'm sure some of those were genuine. But you'd expect Michael to, to want, make the players want to play for him more. And um, and that, that respect thing's a massive thing because they didn't respect Barraclough. And hopefully, you will, I mean, any reputational damage in inverted commas that, that that's been done to Michael O'Neill in, in, in his Stoke tenure 
is not enough to, to to make the likes of a Johnny Evans, a Steve Davis, a, a Dallas, an Aaron Hughes, whoever it is in the coaching staff, uh, lose respect for him. I don't think anyone can. No, well, no, well, they, they they've worked for him, they've worked with him, they know how good he is. Yeah. You know, um, that's a fact. And you know, I, you know, I've mentioned that, that potentially Stoke is just a poison chalice at the minute, um, and that may become more apparent as the years go on. Yeah. Um, it's it's what? almost a bit like Leeds, isn't it, Dave? You know, we, we joke about these teams like Watford and Norwich who go down and up and down and up and down and up every season, um, and Fulham as well. But the reality is, see, if you go down and you don't come back up, you're in a hell of a lot of financial trouble. You've players to get off the wage bill. You've you know, you players in three four year contracts and massive money who are happy to just sit there and pick that up and not play or go on loan. Michael had to get a lot of those players off the off the wage bill there, and you can free him his time in Stoke in any way you like. And ultimately, he didn't really have the backing of the fans towards the end, and there probably was a valid reason for that. Let's be completely honest, based on what they were saying, not everyone was getting it wrong. But you know, you look what happened to Leeds. Leeds were in disarray for what twenty years. You're not telling me every single one of those managers who came into Leeds were dreadful managers. You weren't telling me the problem is they got the managerial choice wrong every single time. There's a general malaise there, and it could be the same with Stoke as you're saying. Yeah, I think like I don't know if anybody's watched the, the Sunderland documentary. Yeah. Right? Okay. Now it's probably not that bad, but it just goes to show you that there can be um an environment created at a football club that has very little to do with the actual football on the pitch that makes it impossible for anybody to succeed. Um now that is an extreme. Well, we think that's an extreme example. That might be the norm. We've got no idea, especially seeing how some of these football clubs are run and the financial difficulties they get themselves into. Um, but the other thing that I heard was that regardless of results in the pitch, apparently O'Neill has left the club in a far better place than it was whenever he arrived. Um, be that wage bill, be that you know, focusing on investment and um, more attention to the uh, academy and things like this, you know, Yeah. again, that whole structure, that complete, like uh, if anybody's a Liverpool fan, that kind of Rafa Benitez sort of, um, you know, uncompromising attitude that I need control of everything if, if I'm going to succeed. I need to have control of everything if I'm going to succeed because I see this as a whole wider process. And maybe it's just a club in this day and age to have that sort of control is just too big a job for anybody and in the league of ireland maybe it is possible because it's just so much smaller but when you step into i think it's a stoke's a huge club when you step into a huge club like that you know it's it's massive from top to bottom so maybe that just was something he attempted it would have taken maybe another couple of years to get it right. And and as you know, there's very little patience in football these days. Yeah, I've got some stats on that as well. I mean, you mentioned that the state that um, Michael O'Neill left the club in. And I've, I've had a brief, I've done a brief bit of research this evening before I came on. And um, Dave, you'll know the the Twitter site, uh, Swiss Ramble, who basically do all the, um, the, the financial stuff and basically yeah. delve into the accounts of clubs every year and year on year um, and do a, do a full analysis of it. And I, I had a look... Um, and they posted something in June of this year, obviously a couple of months before Michael was sacked. And it's very detailed. And, you know, if you if you don't um, have sort of a decent under, understanding of finance, then you're probably going to have to go and Google like a load of the words. But the long and short of it basically was that 
they sold their training ground in their stadium and made a 33 million profit on it. And they were still in the bottom half of the championship in terms of uh, losses made that season. If they hadn't, uh, if they hadn't sold that, they would they would have been by far, um, by far the lowest there. So that shows what he was having to work with. And I ha- you're talking administration territory then, I guess. Literally, yeah. And I, I was having a look at some of the players, and I know like we can focus on transfers a lot. There's a hell of a lot more to football club and the financials of a football club than players in and players out. But I had a look at it, and I remember. Or maybe maybe it's my mind playing tricks on me, but when Michael O'Neill was given the Stoke job, I remember all sorts of articles coming out saying he'd have the he'd, he was promised like loads of money to spend and this that and the other. And obviously, there's a pandemic that's come with that, and you know that's that is quite literally the biggest caveat you can ever give um, in that scenario. But you know, have a look through it. The players he got off the wage bill, you know, players that we've all heard of, the likes of Butland, Afobi, Shawcross, Martin Zindi, Tom Ince, you know, players who have played at World Cups were signed for big money. Presumably, were on big money. The only three players that they they signed that weren't either on a free transfer on a loan deal were Jacob Brown for two million. Anyone heard of him? No. Sam Surridge, two and a half million. Yeah, he played for Cardiff or something, didn't he? Case in point. And, and Ben Wilmot, one and a half million. I haven't heard of any of those. And in that time, he'd sold Nathan Collins to Burnley for 14 million. So yeah, cut the wage bill, massive reduction in player amortization, which is something I don't really understand. But um, yeah, it seems like a good thing. You know, so, also, I was going to say 14th and 15th. He finished 15th in his first season, 14th in his second season. Yeah, after, finish, after the they finished 16th the season before. 16th yeah, the season were, before. And they were literally... And they're like, 17th now. And they were relegation material when he took over the yeah. job, I think. He took over. Think. So 100%. From, from when he actually took over to the end of the season, obviously it was interrupted by COVID, there was a league table of just his record in that time, and he was in the playoffs in that time. So his, his first part of the season was really good. The second and third probably were slightly underwhelming. But it, it, this takes me on to another thing. A lot of people um, with Barraclough, and I think we can kid ourselves at times, and um, you mentioned Ben earlier in the podcast, Dave, like Ben always used the word pragmatic, and the football was dreadful under Barraclough. You know, not necessarily always the style of it. It wasn't like we were launching it long every single time in every single game. It was more that it was the players were playing dreadfully and didn't believe in themselves, and that's never good to watch no matter what style you have. You could, you know, you could have Pep Guardiola, and a team shot of confidence, and it won't be a good watch. You know, people forget Michael O'Neill's style isn't isn't beautiful tick attack of football every time. You know, he's not going to come in and have and have to take sort of 15, 20 games to change a philosophy of a team in, in terms of how we play. You don't get that in international management anyway, in terms of culture on the pitch and philosophy of how you play football on the pitch. It's actually very rare at international level. You know, Spain had it. But a hell of a lot of teams win international tournaments based on being pragmatic and those marginal gains and the things that Michael O'Neill always does. So that transition, really, from, from Barclough to O'Neill, everyone says, you know, he's going to play brilliant football. I personally don't really care if he does, as long as he makes us as good as we can, as long as he gets those marginal gains, as long as he has the respect of the players and maybe gets them to give an extra 5 or 10% to go really, really keen on it. Then we're going to be in with a shot to qualify for this tournament. Yeah, those teams play that way. You're talking like Spain... Um, like Germany, for example, because it's a culture within that country, you know, yeah. and all of the best players go through those academies. And the majority of, of the squad, certainly the first team, think about that that uh, Spain team that, that won two Euros in the World Cup. And even the Germany side, predominantly they're from like Barcelona or yeah. Germany seek Bayern Munich. So it's not already... cultivated in the two-week 
periods they have every three exactly. months. Exactly. You know? there's, there's a lot of that um, understanding and coaching that's already there. Um, the, the international coach just has to harness it and bring the rest of the guys along because they're capable of it. Because, again, they've done that, not maybe to the same level, but at the club side and certainly in their, in their football education. I hate that, but like you know what I mean, right? Um, does it work? Well, there's a challenge there, Dave, to get what I think O'Neill did brilliantly is he was getting League One players to play with confidence and feel that they deserve the place alongside Premier League players. You know what I mean? He was able to get that balance, which you, you're, you're just after, you're absolutely bang on. Those countries that win things primarily their clubs are winning things in the most part the only sort of real exception to that is France but for the most part those clubs have you know especially in the last 20 years they've done stuff Italy you know teams have been winning the Champions League Spain the same you know Germany the same England you look at that I mean look at England have won what the under 17 World Cup and the under 20 World Cup you know and and they've got to two you know a semi-final and, and a final but what Michael was doing was combining players who played for Fleetwood West Brom Rangers Still, he was doing that and I actually think that in itself is such a skill where you are balancing people who are wildly different in terms of maybe of ability and big match experience and expectations and all those sort of things and he was able to just link that and uh, through his organisation and through his structures which I thought was 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 a, a testament to actually the success that he had for us which I thought was, it was a, it's not something that everybody can do I don't think No, it's about creating an environment create an environment where everybody's pulling in the same direction everybody understands their role, everybody understands their, their teammates' importance to the squad and the importance of the process. And if you, again, Andy, it was the point you made earlier on, the pull to go and, and take the time away from your family and without having a break and seeing the kids to go and play international football, if that pull is there, if you're going, you know what, this is going to sound really stupid, but this is, these are human beings or people. Like it's belt or crack going 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 away with with the lads for Northern Ireland. Do you know what I mean? It's belt or crack. Everybody gets on. Training sessions are great. You know, generally go in feeling like we're going to win a game. It's always exciting. The matches always matter. Do you know what I mean? And that's a massive draw. And the one thing only is absolutely brilliant that I think is just getting the absolute maximum out of a player and making the best use of that player. Like, I'm absolutely fascinated to see what he's going to do with Gavin White. What is he going to do with him? You know, is he going to be, like, <clears throat> we've seen this 5-3, what, this 5-3-2 thing or whatever the fuck it is, sorry. Um, but, like, yeah, you know, whatever it is that Barkov is trying to do, it's three at the back and whatever else happens in front of that. O'Neill's a very much like a 4-3-3 man, unless it's against a really, really top side. 4-3-3, like Lavery, White, I don't know, who else are you talking? But Gavin White is absolutely perfect. Big Josh. That, that wide. But, Josh yeah, do you know what I mean? La- Lavery, Lavery and White either said Josh McGuinness. Like, I can see O'Neill looking at that and licking his lips. So I think there's, I think there are players there that suit him, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I suppose before we before we wrap up, um, well, a couple of things if we get the time. I guess first of all, um, Stuart, and I've waited 
certainly until we're on a podcast without Ben before we say this, but is there an element of of what Barraclough's done? Certainly not on the pitch, certainly not with the results, and certainly not in terms of setting us up on the pitch in terms of style of play or anything for this next qualification campaign. But he has left Michael O'Neill at least with the likes of Ali McCann, who would never heard of before um uh, Mike, uh, before Barraclough came in. Daniel Ballard, who would never really heard. I think Michael gave him his debut, possibly, but certainly didn't trust him in the games Barraclough did. Connor Bradley's ready there uh, and there to be used. Shane Lavery's ready and there to be used. Players like this with 10, 15 international caps under his uh, under their belts. And, you know, if you ask Michael honestly, he, you know, he obviously has to say what he has to say about Barraclough and he will be respectful, but I think he genuinely will be sort of thankful that he has these players with a uh, sort of well-oiled from an international perspective, to come in and use and, and and be effective for us, not just be there to gain experience, but be effective for us in this next qualification campaign. I think Ian Barraclough was the Northern Ireland under-21 manager from 2017 through to 2022 and just happened to play a couple of the senior players, you know, in those in the second yeah, half yeah, of his tenure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. I think... There's, there's, there's options there, which I think is really important. And he has done something that I suppose Michael, you know, let's be honest, Michael isn't without his faults. You know, um, I think he wilted on some of the biggest occasions. Um, I think he gave teams way too much respect at times. I'm thinking to the Switzerland game, I think into the Poland game, I think to the games against Germany, nearly any time we played them. I think that there was, that he's missing that, that big, big scalp, you know, that Laurie Sanchez scalp. You know, he just doesn't have it. The thing um, I would say about those two things, just quickly, Stuart, is he learnt from them. Barclough never learnt from them. We, we played that way against Switzerland, and then we were sensational in that second leg. Could have won it. Would have been the first team in 20 years apart from England it. to win. We're, yeah. He gets it wrong against Poland, and then he gets a spot on against Ukraine. Barclough got it wrong, and then did the same thing, and then did the same thing, and then did the same thing for two years. I the think Holland, the big thing the, is... The game, away, the game away to Holland as well. Yeah. Or sorry, we can't call them that anymore because Holland's actually a region in the Netherlands. Yeah. But the game away two in provinces. Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, and, 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 that, and that, that's the amazing thing, isn't it? That 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 Michael did. You know, we'll, we'll maybe have a little bit of a reminisce before we before we wrap up. But you know, fin- finish that question, Ben. But also, you know, in terms of Michael O'Neill's legacy from the first time round, because a couple of people are maybe a little and understandably, but I don't think it's a valid point. Worried that his legacy may be ruined if it all goes tits up this time round. I don't think it can ever be no, ruined. I, I think we could we I could finish below San Marino. Yeah. It is, yeah, and and it would never be ruined because people will talk about 2016, but for me, the 2018 team's the best team I've ever seen. The 2018 well, team's better than the 2016 team, and he took us 27. Oh, sorry, you mean the qualifying for 2018? Qualifying for 2018, qualifying for 2016. 100%. You know, in that group where we absolutely steamrolled the Czech Republic, finished with eight points above them in the end. Norway and Czech Republic at home, beat them 2-0 on both occasions. It was funny, I was looking at at those games, that was in March and September of 2017, and we were on a five-game winning streak. We didn't concede a goal. Norway 2-0, New Zealand in a friendly, Azerbaijan away from home, which still is one of my favourite Ever oh, away victories. Oh yeah. my god, oh my god, 91st minute. Lee Hodson, the only time as trivia, it was the first time Lee Hodson had been on the field when we had won a match. Um <laughs> yes, at the time. Um, but yeah, I think that and then we beat San Marino away from home. I think it was like nil-nil after like 70, 70 minutes. minutes and then, it was, it was there, yeah. It was, and then Josh scored, and then Steve Davis didn't give him the, the penalty for the hat trick. Yeah, and sorry. then 
and then home against Czech Republic. And I don't know if you remember it, but that beautiful like September skyline, red sky, like it was yeah. that beautiful red sky, and we just absolutely dicked them. You know, uh, two goals from set pieces, Johnny Evans, and then Chris Brunt. Oh God, what you would give to have him back? Yeah, and it that was that, that that was the peak. That to me is the peak of all the years I supported Northern Ireland. That we were we were we were never as good. We were sorry. We were better than we'd ever been. I don't think we'll ever. For the time I followed them, but that, that was just not James Stewart. Um, uh, me and me and my mates had this like betting syndicate, right? For um, for my stag, and we were not very good at all, and still aren't very good. But I think it was, it was five of us. It was a five race. You get your free bet during the week, and it was going to the game. And I remember. I just now that you say that, I remember that skyline in the ground. Um, and had a fiber free bet, and it was like Johnny Evans first goal two 0 Northern Ireland. <laughs> and, and, um, we didn't know who'd scored the first goal. We didn't really care. And then we were like, so I wonder was it because it was a corner, and it was, and we didn't realize he'd like scored one goal in about seventy matches before that. <laughs> had no idea. So then Brunt scores a free kick, and we're like. Oh my god! And I think both goals were in the first half, aren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, fairly yeah. sure. Both goals. Yeah, at the railway. So the whole, yeah, so the whole second half, and we're up. We're up. Just sit. We just sit, um, like in the corner, um, the corner of the ground where the old, where the old tunnel used to be, just above it. Yeah, yeah. And um, like we're shitting ourselves every time we're attacking. We're like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> people are around us going, "What's going on?" And we showed them the bet. So eventually, like twelve hundred and eighty quid. Which paid for everybody's um, flights and accommodation to Berlin, which was just amazing. Oh, amazing. But yeah, but that's that's um, like that like that side. It was just such a beautifully balanced side. And sorry, Andy, to the question you asked me about fifteen minutes ago, what has Barraclough done? Um, in the twenty eighteen um, Nations League, we lose to Bosnia at home. We lose to Austria away. We lose to Bosnia away. We lose to Austria at home, right? And I think there was a couple of goals in each of those matches. I think we, we lose by quite good in all of those games as well. We were quite bizarre. good, we, and we conceded late against Austria at home last ninety-second yeah. minute after Corey yeah. Evans had equalised. We, we should absolutely battered Bosnia. Bosnia by the way. That's one of the Bad, best disallowed- performances I've ever seen against Bosnia three, in that game. Was it three three disallowed goals? We were bloody unlucky against them away, and we conceded. Anatovic scored within the. Was it the late on uh, in the away game against yeah. us too? But right. so the, the point being, Michael, yeah, seventy-one minutes. But to me, the the thing was that Michael still used that competition as a way of blooding in players. Now you fast forward four years, and Barakov has almost done Michael a favour because he did that in a far weaker group, Branson against Cyprus, Kosovo, and Greece. You know, you're not coming against any of the quality of sides, but he's been, he's a chance to blood in these players. Shea Charles is another one. Brody Spencer that you mentioned. You Connor, Connor Hazard has gone off and he's got some more international caps. He's won a league he's to Galbraith. He still never gets picked. <laughs> Ethan Galbraith, he never gets picked. Um, but the, he, 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 he's, he's, he's done that. And like the, the, the brilliant thing for Michael is first two matches, he's away to San Marino and then he's home to Finland. Oh, and that's, a, and, that's a perfect... We were talking before we knew yes. Michael was in. Um, Dave will come to you in this. We were talking before Michael came in that... Um, were you on the, the live pod reaction? I don't think you were uh, to the draw. We we were saying when when we got our draw and we got Denmark Finland, obviously we think Denmark are going to clean up, but we're sort of saying, 
you wouldn't mind Denmark in 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 March after a World Cup, after the most congested season of all time, when their players are going and going and going again. You wouldn't mind getting them. Now that Michael's in, you know, that that bounce, that unbelievable new manager bounce that we're hopefully going to get when Michael comes in. Finland at home is probably the most important game of the group in terms of qualification. And, you know, that's, you know, you would not bet against us getting six points. I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you would not bet against us winning, beating Finland at home. No, I wouldn't. But I think it's it's also worth saying, it would appear that Denmark aren't very good. Possibly, yeah. You know, um, I don't know what to tell you. They were everybody's dark horses for the World Cup. What, they get one point? One point, yeah. But then one in qualification, point. I think they won nine of their ten games. and Yeah, maybe they did. But like on recent evidence, it's not great. And I think, I'm, I'm sure they're not they're not looking forward to coming back. I'm sure they can't wait just to get back to their lives after that, you know, after all the hype and everything. That's a hard pill to swallow. And um, we still got them yeah. in June, by the way, which arguably a June. more horrible window to play if you're Denmark than March. Well, you're just so. non-stop, are you? You're just absolutely non-stop. Yeah. So I think, that, that the group, I think the group is even more open than I think it was before before the World Cup. So yeah, I wouldn't bet against us getting six points. And the thing is, can you imagine all the players that you talked about? That like Baratov, let's be honest, he did half of his job. You know, he was to bring these new players into the squad, transition it, and continue to be dead good. So first half. Fine, second half, not very good at all, Ian. Sorry, yeah. but I really wish I had a bit better, but you weren't. So what he's as done, as, as Will rightly says, is he's basically given um, Michael O'Neill a situation where he hasn't had to do that compromise. He hasn't had those decisions to make. Is, to, is this now the time where I start Ballard instead of Garth McCauley or, 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 or whoever it might be, or, et cetera, et cetera? And... Those younger players, they must be absolutely bouncing. Because I'm sure when they, Shane Lavery, for example, sitting there thinking, and God, Michael, oh, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, I was coming into this team that regularly challenged for qualifying for like major tournaments. Yeah. And it just all seems a bit crap now, doesn't it? I suppose if so, you're Connor Bradley and you're Shay Charles, you're glad you stuck it out and you didn't get off after a couple of games, you know, when you were getting offers. And but again, were they maybe questioning their decisions at that point? Do you know were they going? Oh my God! Imagine. So this, what a lift this will give the entire group, and I think that that is a key reason. And you talked about that 2017-18 campaign. That's the best team you've seen. It wasn't a different team. I don't think we were wildly more advanced or whatever. I think what that was was simply a team that knew that they could qualify for an international tournament a team that knew that they could mix it with the big guns, get through the group stages, and they rocked into that next qualifying campaign thinking, we are we are good. We are yeah. good. We can go and we can do this. And that extra confidence gives you, what, 3 4 5%, whatever it is. And you talked about the fine margins earlier on, and that can be the difference. So that might just be the difference this time around. And it's funny, too, just to, 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 to look at that. You know, we were talking about that, that 2017 team. That then rebounded, you know, after the disappointment of not getting to the World Cup. I mean, how bloody close are we getting to the Euros? 15 minutes away from <laughs> you know, qualifying from a group with Germany and Holland in it. It's just, just outrageous. 
It's the most so horrible we had chances. We had we had chances. Like we had chances against the Netherlands at home. We had chances, obviously, against the Netherlands away. We had chances against Germany at home. Connor Washington fucking slips when the ball is there to put in. And you're talking about a team that has come off probably one of the most shattering aggregate defeats in any of those players' careers, you know, a few months before. And then offer our bad Nations League, but he, he gets them right again. He gets them back again. Hey, listen, you've lost those four matches. We've got relegated. You lost those games you know, in, in, in the playoff, you know what, we're going to go again. And that is the thing that he has. That's his, he, he is able to do that. And he's gone three campaigns in a row where we finished first, we finished second, and we finished third in a really, really tough group. And he says it himself, and Andy, I think you've made this point, um, certainly about the, 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 the six points. He mentioned that if you win those games, you put yourself in a position where, you can say to the players, there, there's a chance here. If we keep winning these games, there's a chance. And it's about creating that belief for winning the winnable games and putting yourself in a position and looking at the, the group, look at, literally looking at the group in front of your eyes and yeah, thinking, yeah. we can do this. We've beat them. We've beat them. We've beat them. We, we did this two years ago and we were this much away. We did it four years ago when we were this much away. So we can do this. And a width of a post. A width of a post. Lafferty was a width of a post. And that could be devastating, but it can also be that if you look at it in the wider view, it's reaffirming. It's saying to them, that wasn't a fluke. It wasn't because it was just a crap Greece team that happened to be the first seed. It wasn't because, oh, we scored all these set pieces. It reaffirms the point that actually we are are worth our top 20 place in the world rankings because we're a consistently good team over a period of years and qualifying campaigns. And, and having a team that was able to bounce back from, you know, either going behind or teams pulling level, as we did, you know, you know, Faroe Isles away from home, they made it yeah. 1-1. Hungary, Estonia, I think every game. Belarus, we down, Estonia. Th- that's exactly it. I was at the Estonia game in Tallinn when we went a goal down and we scored goals in the, whatever it was, the 77th and the 81st minute. You know, Belarus, they scored right on half time to make it 1 1 in that massively deflected shot. But he, he was able to do these things. And I feel that that's the thing that excites me. There's very, very few times supporting us where you actually have even a, a, a genuine shiver of belief. You've always have hope, but very rarely do you have belief. And I feel that he gives you the belief um, and you couple that with the hope. You know, it, it, it makes being a supporter that bit more enjoyable. Absolutely. Um, lads, we're going to have to wrap up fairly soon here because I think we've, we've done nearly an hour. I've really enjoyed the conversation. A couple of things. First of all, when Dave was mentioning um, the likes of Connor Bradley and Shay Charles potentially at, at some point at Barraclough's reign questioning their decisions. I think it, it got so bad that even Kyle Lafferty was, was questioning his decision not to not to go to the Republic of Ireland at, at some point. Yeah. I, think, I think everyone... Yeah. How can I going... insult everyone here? And just that's, that's, that's what it was. It wasn't yeah. a fan. It was just thinking about Barraclough. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, and yeah, I, I think just just on one of Dave's points, uh, some popped into my head. And you said Michael mentioned if you if you get these six points, and you can you've got a pathway to qualification. I think we don't we don't demand qualification from this tournament. We don't expect qualification from this tournament. Finland are a better team than us. Slovenia, you know, Kazakhstan. I worry about going there. I think everyone will worry about going there. But the thing is, we got a feeling in November of last year, which we haven't had since the twenty fourteen qualifiers. 
And that was when we went into those games against Lithuania and Italy with nothing to play for and nobody could be bothered. And even the games before it against Bulgaria and Switzerland, you know, we knew the damage was done. We hadn't had dead rubbers for six years under Michael O'Neill. Every game meant something, even when we lose the playoffs. You know, right up to the end of the qualification campaign, every single game meant something. I'm just looking forward to hopefully having that back because it's not a nice feeling. It's uh, it's not a nice it's, feeling. It's the difference between going to a game because you want to or going to a game to. almost because you feel like it's out of obligation. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, it's it's that, it's that old James song, isn't it? If I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor, you know. Mm. Um, and yeah, we've been we've been spoiled. We've been spoiled, and the expectation is very very high. And there's no guarantee we're going to get that again. Um, we all hope we will, because there's evidence there that it's happened before, and we constantly think that the same things are going to repeat themselves over and over again. And that's never the way that it is. That it all eventually comes to an end at some point. So, yeah, reflect and, and think about yeah. how good it was and accept that, yeah, it's a great opportunity, but it might not be exactly the same way it was the last time. Every home game has been an away game for me for 16 years. And I'll tell you the one thing, and I've gone back for Worthington games, Sanchez games, the works. But getting on a flight, wherever I was to go back from a Michael O'Neill game, and the difference of then going back for a Barakoff game, just as you just after saying, it just was like, this is hard work. This is hard work getting the motivation to do it. You did it, but it was yeah. it wasn't as anywhere near as enjoyable. It was an interesting. Imagine, thing, what, just, imagine like, what the players felt like. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, can you imagine? I, I and think, it is a, it, just yeah. to be honest, I think I think we, had, we we're just going to have peace of mind with Michael now. You know, we don't know. You never know where we're at. Even under the worst days under uh, Worthington or you know McElroy or Barraclough, there were still the odd people saying, "This isn't the manager. This is just the pool of players. We're a small nation. We're going to have cycles." You know, if we if we're purring this next qualifying campaign, of course it's going to be disappointed, but at least we're going to know. Well, no, well, you know, nobody else could have done it better. We could not have a better yeah. man in the we've job. Given ourself, we're we're given ourselves, we've given ourselves the best chance. Yeah, we've given ourselves the best chance. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and um, I'll tell you one thing: there, there's a nice symmetry in the idea. Probably not symmetry is the right word, but there's a nice feeling for me the fact that Davis, Johnny Evans, Craig Cathcart, etc., could be ending their their international careers under Michael. With maybe a bit of hope, maybe a bit of structure, then going out on a whimper, then what was going to happen? A bit like Aaron Hughes when he retired at the end of Worthington's campaign. That to me, I think is actually something as well that is actually quite reassuring in one sense. Dave, are you laughing? Because I hope that uh, Craig Cathcart ended his international career under Barraclough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hope he just ended his international career for the stop. Yeah. I was like, Andy's triggered. He's triggered. <laughs> right. Uh, Stuart, who's going to win the World Cup? Um, I think I think Brazil look very very good. I have a funny feeling, however, that if Argentina get past the Netherlands, that that they might do it. I think the belief they would get from that. I want. Oh, sorry, head is saying Brazil, heart is saying Argentina. Dave, I haven't got a bet up this whole World Cup, so I'm going to say England. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. Uh, what a nice podcast that was as well. And Dave's if I say it, it's not going to happen. Women's <laughs> um, all saying women. I think France are going to win it. Um, I think France are going to beat England. In terms of the fearometer, 
that I have of, of, of England winning it. It started really high, and just for some reason, I, they're not getting those those draws that they got in previous times where they've Denmark and quarterfinals and Ukraine and semis and Cro- even Croatia the season or the, the World Cup, the last World Cup they get to. You know, I, I just feel like, was it France, then Portugal and Brazil or Argentina? Oh, one of them. They're not going to win all three of them, are they? Yeah, well, I don't know. They, they, it appears that they might be quite good, but I like. I think the, the most fun two two really quick ones, right? Abubakar's header against Brazil, and he goes mad and takes oh. his shirt off, <laughs> and then gets sent off, and then walks off the pitch with this just big massive grin in his face, and he like that is good. No, he just doesn't care. He's just <laughs> like he's like. I've scored against Brazil, probably the winner. I don't even care. I know anymore. what your next one's going to be, by the way. Life's never going to get better than this. My next one, yeah, I think I sent the other night. Uh, Ronaldo sitting on the bench watching oh, his. Oh, I thought Ronaldo. it was going to be Switzerland getting hammered. No, but this oh, is that part was of brilliant, it, though, by the way. This is part of it. Ronaldo sitting in the bench watching his 20 year old replacement come on, score a hat trick, create a goal. Um, Portugal play by far the best football they've probably played in the last, yeah. like, honestly, probably the last 16 years since 2016, 20 or 2006, sorry, probably. Um, and in, in that whole foray of Ronaldo madness, Switzerland get absolutely smashed. <laughs> It was a and good night, wasn't it? Was that it the was day so- Michael uh, got announced as well, or the day after? Like, it was a good couple of days. Day after. Oh, it was Beautiful. Great. Day after. It like, remember that day as Liverpool supporters, Dave? We had Jürgen announced one day and qualified for the Euros the next. Like, yeah, it was fab. Oh, and it's 15, and this wasn't is it? is what it is. And you're right. Do you know what? Yeah. And this is what it's about. Football, people, I don't know. For me, football's about moments in your life. And... And Switzerland getting hammered was one of them. <laughs> was one of them. But but Michael O'Neill has given us moments in our life and there's every opportunity now for him to give us just just give us one more moment. Just one more moment where we feel like we're we're in with the chance of qualifying. To go to a yeah. game where everything matters, where you're just you've got that unbelievable like childlike excitement inside you. You know, that's that's all you want. Well, that's all I want anyway. So if I get one more of those, whether we win, lose, or draw, then I'm going to be a happy man. I think Lafferty has one more moment in him. Oh, oh, here we go. Just <laughs> from the morning, no, not for us. Not for one us. One more moment. It, it, it I was going to say, Dave. It probably result in a prison sentence. <laughs> one more moment, but we'll, we'll see. I was going to say, Dave's, Dave's little spiel there was a nice place to finish, and then Stuart's ah. thrown the Lafferty's one more moment grenade. <laughs> Will he have another uh, Azerbaijan moment like Healy had? We will see, but I'll tell you what. Um, I will bounce into doing these previews and will look forward to planning, preparing these previews for you in March more than I have done over the last two, two and a half years. It's such an exciting time to be a Northern Ireland supporter. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Dave. Thanks to Stuart for joining. Hopefully we'll get everyone together at some point for another Christmas quiz, um, preferably do questions that, that Stuart somehow can't research. How I'm going to find those questions, I've absolutely no idea. But listen, you guys will be able to play along to him. We'll have something out for you. Um, apologies that we've been a little bit um, a little bit short with the podcast recently. We didn't do one after Barraclough, but uh, hopefully that all makes up for tonight. And yeah, I think we've done over an hour. So thanks guys for coming on. Thanks to you guys for listening and see you again very soon. Bye-bye.